Welcome to Foul Players Radio, your podcast for arts, entertainment, and pop culture. My name is Michael Spedden, your host. Every episode features interesting people with fun, fascinating stories about their journeys in the performing arts. Authors, actors, dancers, writers, musicians, athletes, comics, you name it. Folks who are center stage, backstage, on camera, or behind the scenes. Sit back and listen. Let's have some fun. Foul Players Radio is a production of the Foul Players Group and a proud member of the SJ Network. And welcome again to the Rising from the Ashes edition of Foul Players Radio. My name is Michael Spedden. Tonight's guest is Stephen J. Rubin. I had a wonderful time interviewing Stephen about his book, The Twilight Zone Encyclopedia, because The Twilight Zone happens to be my favorite TV show of all time. We discussed our favorite episodes. He talked about all the actors he interviewed, all the research that he did. Um, He had all kinds of great anecdotes about all of the episodes. And if you are a Twilight Zone fan, you'll really enjoy this interview, and you'd also enjoy the book. I do have links in the liner notes of this episode on where you can get the book. It is available on Amazon.com, both in Kindle and hard copy version. And you can get it wherever books are sold, in actual uh, brick-and-mortar bookstores, too. He also is a producer of television shows and movies, and he's done that for quite a few years. And I also put a link to his IMDb page in the liner notes, too. Subscribe to Foul Players Radio for free at www.foulplayersradio.com or listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podcast Addict, Podchaser, Pocket Cast, Deezer, Listen Notes, Player FM, Podcast Index, Overcast, Castro, Castbox, or Podfriend. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Foul Players of Perryville are now booking murder mystery shows for the late summer and fall of 2021. Both indoor or outdoor venues, trains, boats, office parties, fundraisers, or just for the heck of it, give us a call. 443 600 or www.foulplayersofperryville.com, or you can email us at foulplayersperryville at yahoo.com. We'll be back with Stephen J. Rubin right after these words. Howdy, it's Matt Gwynn here, popping in to let you know about the adventures of the albino rhino. It's a show, uh, Frank the Giraffe here, my ho host James Godwin, and myself put on for you guys twice a week. Uh, every Wednesday, we talk to a comedian, and every Friday, we call it Freak Yeah Friday. The show itself is not safe for work, and that freak is definitely a different word. I just don't know what podcast you're going to be listening to this promo on, and I don't want to, uh, you know, start screaming explicatives while you're sitting in your office. If you're lucky enough to have been able to go back to the work that you did before inside of an office or whatever, you know, but we go on a, an adventure twice a week and it's a good time because we get to sit down and talk to some really cool people. Uh, and I enjoy it because, you know, I'm just curious little albino who uh, likes to get to know folks, you know? You can find us a couple ways, actually multiple ways, really. Man, there's a lot of different ways to find us. You can find us through our central hub, which is www.albinorhino.me. It's the website find me on. And then, you know, the podcast, you can find the videos on YouTube. Search for Adventures of the Albino Rhino, also linkable from our website. And you can also find us through Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Radio Public, and Spotify. That's right. We're on the same place Joe Rogan is. Granted, we're not we're not the Joe Rogan experience, but you know what I mean? We're there. We're there. So give us a listen. Promise you won't be promise you won't be dissatisfied. And enjoy your day. going on minions mike here for misery point radio and you're listening to the coast to coast power hour on the sj network 
Now I know what you're thinking. Mike, what the F is a Coast to Coast Power Hour? Well, my uneducated and uninformed friend, the Coast to Coast Power Hour is a Borg-like collective of epic podcasters from epic podcasts that have all come together to discuss the important things in life. Pop culture, current events, random awesomeness, stuff like that. Trust me, you need this in your life. For more information on this show and all the shows on the Coast to Coast Power Hour, as well as on the SJ Network, reach out to publicist Steve Joyner at www.s-j-network.com or stevesjnetwork at gmail.com. No need to thank me. I'm just out here, you know, changing lives. What Your Effin' Binge is a podcast brought to you by Chris, Anchor, and Spotify. And what we talk to our guests about is what they're currently binge-watching on TV. And uh, what we do is we like to uh, take a different approach. I don't want to know what the name of the show is that they're going to talk about before they come on. I have to actually guess it. So I ask them who, what, when, where, why, and uh, try to figure out what it is that they're watching. A lot of times I'm able to guess it. And sometimes I'm not, and that's fine. That adds to the comedy of the show. We like to bring our guest on, whether they're a model or an actress or a producer or a musician, and just let them have a platform to be able to tell everybody what they have coming up next and also entertain everybody with what's worth watching. So I hope everybody tunes in for the next episode of What's Your Effin' Binge. Thanks. It's Chris. Well, Steve Rubin, welcome to Foul Players Radio. I tell you, I've been looking forward to talking to you because I'll give you a little bit of history here real quick. You know, I've since I've been podcasting more on a on a bigger scale, getting to meet other people, I've really met a lot of people that are considered or they consider themselves geeks. And I've been kind of slowly coming around to my own geekdom. And I found <laughs> out that I'm just a huge geek or a nerd. And I think I have to say my number one thing is the Twilight Zone. So I think I've got the right guy on my show tonight here to talk to uh, about these things. And I should have gotten some popcorn just to sit here and listen to you speak about it. So you, you have a book out now, the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia, and it's just an amazing book. I was looking through it, and it looks like it released it in 2018, I believe. But how long did this take you to put together with all of this information? Oh, well, uh, it was a process. Probably cover to cover took about three years. Really? That was it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I um, I got very lucky. I became friendly with Rod Serling's widow, Carol. Oh, And Carol okay. lived in the Pacific Palisades. Uh, I first got in touch with her when I was a public relations executive at Showtime, and I was developing films at the same time. I was starting to start my producing career. Uh-huh. And we at that time, we were developing a Rod Serling biopic. Mm. And I was working with two young writers. And we never made the movie, but I made that connection with Carol. And then as kind of a lark, a couple years later, I decided I wanted to direct something. Because, you know, you never know you can direct unless you try something. And even though directing wasn't my ambition, I was really more of a writer. I thought I should direct them. So I actually remade as a as an experiment an episode of The Twilight Zone. I took one of my favorite episodes from the, I think it's a fifth season episode. It's called The Seventh is Made Up of Phantoms. It's about a U.S. Army National Guard tank crew on maneuvers in current day, present day Dakota. And they go through a warp and end up at Custer's Last Stand. Yes, so yes, yes. Great, great episode, <laughs> uh, uh, early Warren Oates. He was in it. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot about directing. I had a lot of fun. Uh, what had happened was a friend of mine was a military liaison person. He developed a friendship with a U.S. Marine coordinator with the entertainment office in Hollywood. So we got a lot of cooperation. We actually went to Camp Pendleton, north of San Diego, and we filmed on their reservation with big armored vehicles. It was just a, a dream come true for me. I mean, I I think as a little boy, I was playing with tanks and trucks and the dirt in the backyard. Now I got to play with big tanks and big trucks. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I developed a relationship with Carol. And then I work primarily in the film business as a writer producer. I'm out there every day developing film and TV projects. I've produced five films, 
two documentaries and three narrative features. And But it takes forever to get anything done. I mean, you could literally spend a decade trying to get a piece of material bought and sold. And oh, I yeah. came to the re- realization that my book writing, which has always been a very, very good process for me, and I've, I've published over nine books, that I got to get back into writing something. I mean, this is ridiculous. I spent 10 years in the 90s and I had nothing to show for it. So what happened was I looked around and I had had a great deal of success with my James Bond movie encyclopedia. And I was looking for a subject that could kind of go the encyclopedia route because you want you want a subject, first of all, that appeals to a lot of people. Obviously, you don't want to sell two books. Mm-hmm. And you also want to find a subject that you can create really interesting entries. And one of the things I discovered in the, you know, the ether about the world of the Twilight Zone is it has been covered in other books. Uh, the most famous was the 1982 book that Mark Secree published is called The Twilight Zone Companion, which was kind of a very important book for fa- Zone fans because it was the first book that actually put all the episodes in one book so you could see what they were with photographs. But I felt that Mark's book was heavy on criticism. Uh, in terms of critiquing the episodes and not a lot about the backgrounds of the people who were involved in the show, particularly the actors. I would argue that the first five, the, the five seasons of the original Twilight Zone featured the greatest casts ever featured on television. I this agree. Day. And I felt that they needed to get their names out there again because they were their names were being forgotten. I mean, obviously, we remember Rod Serling. Rod Serling will always be with us as the creator of the show. But there were hundreds of actors who I felt needed to have their kind of day in the sun, plus a lot of the writers and directors who we worked with. So I've decided that, yes, this is an encyclopedia idea. And Chicago Review Press in Chicago really liked the idea. And so I started to pull it all together. My first order of business was I had to sit down and watch all 156 episodes, which I'd never done before. In -hmm. fact, in doing that, I realized that I've probably seen before that I'd probably seen the same 60 episodes over and over again. When you literally pick up the DVD or the Blu-ray set and start to watch the shows in order, it's an extraordinary experience. Uh, yeah, oh. I mean, we can walk around all day long and say, oh, great, great show, great show, great show. But when you watch the episodes, you realize it's more than just a great show. It's one of the greatest shows in history. I agree with you. I mean, looking back at these, watching these, it's almost like a uh, a whole series of fables. You know, there's always, it seems to be like, you know, a moral to every story. And Rod Sterling really seemed to put his heart and soul into this. I mean, some of these moral stories, especially the things that really affected him the most. And looking at, you know, the beginning of your book, how you were talking about how this show, this show started, it was 1959, what the world was like back then. And with Rod Serling, you know, having been a veteran of World War II, the Holocaust was as long ago to somebody in 1959, pretty much as like, you know, just looking at a timestamp between now, like maybe what, three presidents ago, right. three presidential elections ago. So a lot of this stuff was just so recent and really still in people's heads. And you know, with these, these themes that were uh, these themes that he put forward, you know, these experiences of, you know, people and what people were going through at these times. I mean, you know, just amazing. I, I really think that's why a lot of these episodes are just so timeless, you know, because yeah, yeah. they really do. You know, the, and, and the thing is, is that, you know, you can kind of relate the moral of a lot of these stories to things going on today. Um, you know, how people interact with each other and how, you know, people are flawed in a lot of ways and how these flaws, um, you know, really come to be. And, um, you know, he, he wrote what, like two thirds of these episodes, 92 of 156 rod, rod in, the, rod in the late fifties, a very frustrated man. I mean, he came yeah. out of live television at a time in Hollywood when television could not be controversial. Um, yes. Spon- yes. Sponsors, the sponsors had a lot of power. They could literally tell you that if you have, uh, if your sponsor's a tea company, you're not serving coffee on that show. Mm-hmm. One story I heard was even a Western where the cavalry commander orders his men to ford the river. They had to change the dialogue because Chevrolet was sponsoring it. So you couldn't use the word <laughs> ford. 
Is that right? Wow. Wow. But more, more importantly, he couldn't do any of his controversial stories because he, he was very much a writer way ahead of his time. He wanted to use television for what it should have been, uh-huh. which was to reach the largest audience in history. He realized he could reach more people with a single broadcast than every writer in history combined. I mean, the fact is, tens of millions of people were watching television in those days. Uh-huh. So for instance, uh, he had he, he was definitely a headline watcher. He's a big reader, newspaper reader. And he read about this horrible story of a black man in the South named Emmett Till, who yeah, was caught yeah, whistling yeah. at a white woman. And he literally was hung by the local, local posse. And he thought that story would be great. And he was literally told by an executive that you can tell it, but you got to change him to a Mexican. I mean, that's how much sensitivity there was at that time. They wanted no controversy whatsoever. If they wanted to do a Holocaust story, you couldn't have it sponsored by a gas company, that kind of thing. So Rod was at a kind of at a crossroads. And he realized that I I think his wife once said, uh, and this might have been apocryphal, but she said, you might as well just tell these stories on Mars because you're not going to tell them here. And he got the idea of using science fiction fantasy mm-hmm. to tell these morality stories, but they wouldn't be on the surface about anything controversial. In reality, they were about things that were very controversial, but he used the medium to tell his stories that way. A perfect example is Eye of the Beholder, one of the great episodes. The oh, yeah. Story. Donna Douglas, right? Donna Douglas, exactly, of a, of a person who's going in for surgery to, to change their face, plastic surgery, and you don't realize that she's gorgeous and everybody on this planet looks like a pig. And <laughs> yeah. uh, it was his commentary on racism mm-hmm. and conformity and uh, authoritarianism. And he did that throughout, his, uh, throughout the series. He would find issues, child endangerment, the Holocaust, Vietnam. These were subjects that were literally off limits to television writers at that time. Mm -hmm. TV in the late 50s was all about Westerns. It was about cops and robbers, game shows. Occasionally, you got a teleplay from Rod or Pat Shayefsky or Reginald Rose. But for the most part, it was about selling soap and selling, you know, toilet paper. Right, right. And um, also, it's very challenging for Rod because anthology series were getting out of vogue. As Rod got his contract in 59 for The Zone, James Aubrey had come aboard at CBS to take over programming. Now, Aubrey was what was considered a, a wonderkind executive at that time. He really knew what television was all about. And in his own mind, it wasn't about anthology. He liked the fact that People watched a lot of Gunsmoke because they liked James, James Arness. They watched The Untouchables with uh, Robert Stack. They watched I Love Lucy with Lucille Ball. He felt that TV series should be about continuing characters. Mm-hmm. Anthology was not the way to sell a show. So right at the start, Rod was faced with a challenge that the president of his own network was against his series hmm. and tried to stop it several times and indeed canceled it after the third season. But the show they brought to replace it, a show uh, ironically named Fair Exchange, bombed. Hmm. And uh, Aubrey, with egg on his face, had to call Rod Serling at the end of, I think that was 61, and said, can you bring your show back in the, sp- in the second season? Uh, not the second season. Second part of the season, you know, after the holidays. Oh, right, right, right. As a replacement show. And that's when they extended it to one hour. So your fourth season of Zones, instead of having 30 plus half hour episodes, had 18 hour episodes. Right, right, right. And those are the ones that really don't get played on television much anymore because all the marathons always have the half hour episodes on. And and when I sat down to watch those episodes as part Mm -hmm. of my efforts to watch every episode, I realized how really good they are. I mean, they're really cool. I mean, yes, oh, yeah, yeah. They're 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 not like the 30-minute episodes. They're not as tight, but they're also very good with a couple or three that stand out in my mind, particularly the James Whitmore episode on Thursday we leave for home, which is about that stranded space crew of people 
you know, a whole colony of people who will get a chance to come back to Earth because hmm. their rescue saucer has arrived. And James Whitmore has been their, their kind of captain all this time, and he slowly begins to lose his power mm-hmm. over them. It's really an amazing episode. Uh-huh. That, that was one thing you know, when you were kind of talking about here, and I'd read you know, about Rod Sterling butting heads with the networks. And, and and I've had, you know, on the show, a number of other folks that have been producers and creators of television shows and just how frustrating it can be to have all these hands reaching into the pot. You know, you're trying to create your television show. You want to tell your story and all of a sudden, all these non, a lot of times it's just not these non-creative people are, are just reaching in and, you know, just, just knocking everything over and, well, what was interesting tough. about Rod mm-hmm. is that he had a very unique writer's contract, perhaps one of the few ever done mm-hmm. where he had complete creative control. Right. No one right. could tell him what to write. Mm-hmm. What, 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 he, what, what affected his ability was simply keeping the show on the air mm-hmm. and making sure it was getting the numbers. Now, in part of my research, I went to the Motion Picture Academy which has the complete collection of variety in the Hollywood Reporter, the trade papers. I was very curious about the ratings because uh, over the years, I'd heard that the Twilight Zone ratings were not particularly special. Uh And in reality, the show did not do very well in the top 25. You know, there was never a top 25 show. Occasionally, they would would have a, a successful episode that maybe dipped into the 25. So he was always fighting to keep the show on the air because like like most network shows, it's all about the numbers. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I don't think he planned ever to be an on-camera host of the show. Mm -hmm. But getting back to what Jim Aubrey had said, that people tune into a continuing character, since Rod Serling was producing an anthology show, somebody had to be a continuing character. And so they kind of followed the pattern of, of a show on at the same time, the Alfred Hitchcock show. So Twilight Zone was kind of the Rod Serling show. And obviously he went from the first season just as an audio presence and the second season actually appears on camera and hosted the rest of this show. I think I'd read somewhere and I think I think I'd read that he actually was not supposed to be the on camera host. Wasn't there somebody else? Well, you know, they went to Orson Welles. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was was purely a question of dollars and cents. Mm -hmm. You know, Orson was too expensive for them. I I think he did a good job, though. I liked, I kind of liked his style, and he seemed to, he just seemed to be a good narrator to me, you know. Oh, uh, he was great. In fact, I I would argue, you know, obviously the shows were terrific by themselves, but he was just the straw, the strawberry on the shortcake. I mean, yeah. he just, he became such a terrific, just introducer. And it's very rare for a writer to ever achieve the profile that Rod did. I mean, mm-hmm. over the years, there've been thousands of television hosts for every type of show, but rarely does the writer get to step up and, and Rod, you know, Rod wrote those introductions. You know, he wasn't just relying on somebody else to tell him. And those, I actually was 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 delighted that I, in my book, I actually was able to reproduce the opening introduction to each show because they're very poetic. I didn't put the closing ones in because I didn't want to give anything away because some people haven't seen the episodes. I was very keen on, on <laughs> yeah. not giving you spoilers, but but he actually was a very charming host. And I think over the years, he was respected in that way. And he got lots of work. And of course, he is the host of the Night Gallery, which is the show that followed the Twilight Zone a few years later, although he did not produce the show. He did not have creative control of the show. And in fact, the Night Gallery, as delightful as his intros were in some of the episodes he wrote, I don't think the Night Gallery was a very consistent show. No, no, it, it, it wasn't. I, I don't think it was. And another thing too, was that I didn't think I have that series, you know, I own a, you know, a copy of it and I was watching them through. It just didn't, it, it seemed like they really kind of phoned it in with some of the special effects on that show. They just didn't look particularly good. And they kind of really, it really took away from the show, I think. Sure. Um, also, they, they were un, un, unsure of the format. I mean, sometimes right, you right. watch an episode that was 20 minutes long, followed mm-hmm. by a, a 10 minute episode and then a 15 minute episode. They mm-hmm. didn't have a consistency. I mean, there were even little interstitial one or two minute bits. I mean, it was it was a yeah. show that didn't yeah. quite know what it wanted to be. Although I will say this, mm-hmm. I tuned in every week 
because I wanted to see Rod. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Him walking past those paintings was enough to tell me this is something I need to watch. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you know, I've listened to a, a whole lot of interviews, you know, because, you know, I, you know, have, you know, the type of show that I do here. And I listen, I've listened to a lot of other ones because I really enjoy hearing people's stories about, you know, their journey in the performing arts. And I've heard a number of people that were on the twilight zone. They just told me it was probably one of the most delightful experiences they ever had working with him, you know, the, how he treated people very well. And it was really an envied show to be on. You know, a lot of people really wanted to be on that show. Did was, When you were researching this, did you find that to be the case with a lot of people? Absolutely. I mean, everybody I talked to, and I tried to reach everybody who was living, who would give me an interview. Right. And right. it was a class act all across. I mean, this is this is a show that for the 99% of it was produced at MGM. The first mm -hmm. episode, the Earl Holloman episode, Where Is Everybody, which is considered the pilot episode, was actually f f uh, filmed at Universal. But Buck Houghton, the producer, realized that the best studio in town to utilize for an anthology show was the uh, MGM lot because it was at it was just it had I mean the MGM lot in 1959 there were four or five lots they had every possible location you could pull from except for a desert where you had to go out to the desert climbs but it was a perfect place and everything was first class over there I mean mm -hmm. the, these are the key craftspeople in the industry whether they were grips or electric or assistant directors or casting super, script supervisors I mean you were in the royalty of Hollywood and treated first class and it was a prestige show from the get-go. I think early on, people realized when they got an audition for a Twilight Zone, it was pretty, pretty special. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so many people really, you know, kind of launched their careers from there. You know, we saw so many people that, you know, we've seen in so many other things. And it's really fun to kind of watch that and spot people as you're going through. Absolutely. And, and everybody, you know, that I talk to and you know, a lot of people that I know have this thing called uh, that guy. When you're watching a show and you see somebody familiar that you've, you know, especially a well-known character actor or somebody that's been around, you may not know their name, but there was always like that guy, that well, see, guy. That, you know? That's why I wanted to do the book because I wanted to turn that guy into the, you know, that person's right. real name. Absolutely. I mean, and, that, uh, and that's, and that's a wonderful idea there. That's a wonderful idea. Instead of, you know, you know, who Ed Wynn. You know, everybody remembers him, of course, from Mary Poppins and a couple of the other you know, parts that he was in. But, you know, Ed Wynn, it was a very, very highly respected act. Somebody from my generation that wasn't watching TV in the 50s a lot. You know, we were growing up in the 70s. We may have remembered him more from the fellow who laughed and flew up in the air on Mary Poppins <laughs> as compared to, you know, his bigger body of work. That was back in those days. And that I think is probably one of the best things you can do for people that are interested in show business history, you know, really giving these folks a bigger description to people, really right. you know, letting them know a lot more about their body of work. So you can see it and really see their place in show business history. You know, oh, no, um, it's very true. Also, th also, this was a show that gave character actors technically the second or third banana type of a performer mm -hmm. leading roles. You're I mean, right. You're Burgess Meredith, one of the great character actors of all time, more oh, contemporary yeah. audience. The audiences always remember him as Mickey as Rocky's trainer, of course, uh -huh. but, but Mer Meredith was just a, a marvelous character actor and oh, yeah, he yeah. had starring roles in four episodes. I mean, he basically, mm -hmm. he was the guy. I mean, of course, his most famous one is a uh, time enough at last where he <laughs> survives that a bomb by that going poor guy. <laughs> poor guy. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, and, all know, he wanted to do was read and, and he finally has the time enough and what happens? Oh, Drops God. his glasses. I my my hope is that he crawled around the city long enough to find an optician shop. <laughs> <laughs> yes, something. Yeah. Oh gosh. Well, and he was so good in Mr. Dingle the Strong. He sure, was good in that. Sure. Uh, I also, you know, the other ones that he did, the um oh the obsolete man. That's my favorite of his. Right. That's my favorite of his. Oh, right? yeah. Again, you know, another guy who likes to read, you know. Oh, you know, absolutely. And he plays, he plays with a lot of zeal, the devil in that one hour uh, episode, Printer's mm -hmm. Devil, which I thought was just great, too. Mm -hmm. And, 
you know, another another actor who we certainly have great respect for, Jack Klugman. Oh, yes. Also in four great episodes. And mm-hmm. just as Klugman said over the years, he just relished that mm-hmm. Rod Serling dialogue. Mm-hmm. It just bounced off your mouth just in so many ways. And he just, he considered that kind of the gospel when he was reading a script, you know, you know, if Rod Serling was writing it. And there's another thing about the series, Rod's style of writing, very dialogue heavy and mm-hmm. very, you know, character driven was kind of going out of style. It was kind of a period where dramatic, dramatic performances were just, it was becoming more about the action and less about the words. Now, here it is. We're in 2021. And I could talk to you a long time about how the concept of good dialogue has changed in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Very rarely do you have quotable dialogue anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, they always have those famous contests where, you know, guess the movie quote or, mm-hmm. you know, a famous line of dialogue. And we rarely quote dialogue anymore. Rod's, Rod's style of just getting into the heads of these characters and writing very, very good, solid dialogue was so well done on The Twilight Zone. And when The Twilight Zone was over, it would be hard to find that quality of writing anywhere. And, uh, and Rod himself was having trouble getting another show off the ground. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't that it was almost like the, the town had passed him by. Right. And although he wrote for other things, did a lot of rewriting, he certainly got a lot of attention for writing the first Planet of the Apes movie, you know, for for Fox. And of course, had a Twilight Zone quality about that movie. Oh, especially the end. Oh, yeah. Especially the end. Right out of the Twilight Zone. Right out of the Twilight Zone. Oh, yeah. I could just, (laughs) I could just almost see him walking out on the beach. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. You know, just coming out with his suit on and his cigarette standing right behind Charlton Heston and just saying the ending, you know, and then all of a sudden they're just fading away into the twilight zone. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny because a lot, a lot of traffic on the internet these days has been passing forth little messages with Rod Serling commenting on this the current state of politics in the United States. And, you know. and it literally, I, I'm glad Rod Serling was, is not around right now. Because mm-hmm. if, if he was around right now, he would blow out the stops and try to get things done properly because mm-hmm. he did not suffer fools gladly. He, one of his big things after the show was finished, he became a very big crit, critic of the Vietnam War. He yeah, really yeah. felt that we had no business being in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And history has shown he was very right. One of the first things, and I really see a lot of parallels with this episode with the way things are nowadays, is the monsters are due on Maple Street. Oh, sure. You know, ironically, I had never heard of the Twilight Zone. This was like maybe 1979. I was in the sixth grade. And um, we had a reader in our um, English or reading class, and we read that short story. Oh. Okay. And we were like, wow. And then ironically, I happened to be sitting up late at night watching TV, and that episode came on. It was on the Twilight Zone was on a local channel here in Maryland where I'm from. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. This is what we read in class the other day, and I watched it. And then after that, I was hooked. I would, you know, when, as long as I had permission, I could stay up late. Cause it was always on like around 11 or 12 at night, uh, real late on a Friday, I think. And I really got hooked on it back then. You could really see how the way people were behaving in that episode, how that's come to life he, over the last several years, you know, Rod, Rod had the ability to climb into the heads of an average person. Mm-hmm. He wasn't interested in heads of state. He wasn't interested in generals or politicians. He was interested in your average guy on the street yeah. and how yeah. he would react to extraordinary situations. Mm-hmm. And that whole episode is about paranoia mm-hmm. and how, what happens when uh, you lose control and how you can turn on your friends for no apparent reason. Mm-hmm. And it was a very disturbing episode and beautifully acted. And again, mm-hmm. a great team. Uh, Claude Akins, who played Steve, one of the key characters, mm-hmm. usually played a, a heavy in a lot of the television shows. But he was probably at his best there as a good guy. And I'm a big fan of that episode. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. Um, you know, another one that was similar to that one in a lot of ways. And I you know, and the the title of the episode escapes me right now. Are you gonna are you gonna say the shelter? Yes, yes. Jack uh Jack Albertson and yes. uh, they roll at the birthday party and then they get the word that there's a nuclear attack. Right. Nobody was prepared for it. And then Except they all kind him. of turn right, and then they all kind of turn on each other and they really and then all of a sudden the attack is over. And then they're looking at each other like, what have we done? It it's, we you know, done? it is amazing that Rod had the ability to figure out how people would react in situations like that. And, you know, I, I've spent most of my life trying to keep calm mm -hmm. and keep the people around me calm. One of my first jobs out of college, I worked in a hospital as a telephone operator. Mm -hmm. My job was to call emergency situations if there was a heart attack on the fifth floor oh, right, i would right, go on yeah. the overhead page and page you know for the appropriate people to go to the heart attack but i the whole concept of taking a deep breath mm -hmm. and just thinking this out first is what people on twilight zone don't do they completely react immediately and lose control and i think rod did a really good job of that the other thing about the other thing that really defined the show was his sense of nostalgia i learned this later that every year he would like to leave Hollywood and go back to Binghamton, New York, oh, which was yeah. his hometown. Even though he was born in Syracuse, he grew up in Little Binghamton, which is a small town kind of almost from another age, you know, with its, mm -hmm. you know, the downtown has that grassy area where they had a, a merry-go-round and that that inspired two episodes. The, one of the most famous being, of course, Walking Distance, mm -hmm. which is the yep. Gig Young episode where he goes back in time to his old hometown. And then the other episode is Willoughby. A, a stop at Willoughby. Exactly. Yes. Stop at Willoughby. Exactly. Yes. And, and those are two wonderful episodes. It really, really talked about Rod's feeling about where he wanted to be. You know, in both those episodes, the leads either was uh, Gig Young and Walking Distance or or James Daly in Stop at Willoughby right, are about right. burnouts. You know, yeah. guys just couldn't take it anymore. And Rod, after a season of writing zones and so many of them, he was burnt out. He had to get back to Binghamton and to Finger Lake area where they owned a house, the, the Serling Zone house in the Finger Lake district of New York. Now, let me ask you this too. Now, was he churning these episodes out every week? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, he he often joked that if he dropped a pencil on the ground in the time to stoop to pick it up, he was already twenty minutes behind. I wow! He was uh, cranking out episodes. I think, and I'm not sure of the exact number, but in the first season, uh, they had something like thirty-five episodes. I think he wrote more than twenty of them. And, yeah, yeah. And just you know what he'd do? Uh, apparently, he was suffering from some little malady that made it difficult for him to type. Mm -hmm. It was some kind of arthritic uh, malady. Uh, so he ended up buying one of these dictation machines and go, would go sit out by his pool in the Palisades. Mm -hmm. And he would dictate the stories into the dictator. To me, the most <laughs> cruel thing is all of these dictaphone tapes were used over and over again. So none of them were preserved. Oh, oh my God. Can you imagine having him watching him? talk into a machine but that's how he he wrote so he would hand the dictate tape machine to his secretary who would type up the script that way and he had quite a regimen um fortunately he was able to bring in other writers and three of them that really stood out were charles beaumont mm -hmm. richard matheson and george clayton johnson his triumvirate and they they really did a heck of a job, particularly Matheson and Beaumont, who I think had the second and third number of episodes by them. Matheson was very well known at that time as, you know, he had done The Incredible Shrinking Man for Universal. And his ability, like Serling, was to take an extraordinarily normal situation and throw it on its end in a crazy, you know, situation. He's the one who was looking outside the airplane on a, on a airline flight one day and thought he thought thought he saw somebody skiing off a cloud. And in, <laughs> in, in his head, he began to realize what if something was on the plane. Of course, the famous episode "Nightmare oh. at Twenty Thousand Feet" is, uh -huh. is pure Matheson. Uh -huh. 
And then he was at a, a diner looking, looking at a couple in the next booth, and they were playing one of these little fortune-telling machines. And all of a sudden, mm-hmm. he's thinking, what, what, what if they couldn't stop playing that little fortune-telling machine? <laughs> mm-hmm. That was one thing. And it just kind of goes to show you how the Twilight Zone has you know, just been become so engraved in our culture, especially for the people that love it. Uh, there was an episode of the, of the show, John Lithgow, I think it was called third rock from the sun, perhaps. And there was an episode where he was going, he was at an airport. And of course, you know, he did the nightmare at 30,000 feet in the twilight zone movie. And I think William Shatner was coming out of the plane. Maybe he was going on. He was coming out. William Shatner looked at him and goes, you would not believe what just happened to me. And that was. <laughs> the now, now you're, you're, you, that said, you said Lithgow. Now he did a comedy series called third rock from the sun. Right, right, right. Yeah. There he was also, an episode of the, of the twilight zone. He also third did rock an episode in the movie. I don't know if you're, you mean the movie because Lithgow played the Shatner character that's what I was saying. Remake. Yeah. Yeah. In that, the remake in the feature. Yeah. No, that's, right. that was the George Miller remake of that episode. Right. Yeah. Th- that, that's what I was saying. That, uh, there was a TV show where Shatner and Lithgow encountered each other at an airport. Right. And um, they made reference to the fact that both of them had played that part. Oh, okay. That's I think Shatner I was coming off of a plane. And I think Lithgow was going on. And they oh. pass each other, and William Shatner looked at him and said, "You would not believe what just happened to me." <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was saying. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's cool. I wish I'd seen that. That's cute. Getting back to Beaumont, I mean, Beaumont, oh, sure, sure, had a kind of macabre touch in writing. The story goes that he he was raised with five sisters, and he was the only boy, and all they used to tell him all sorts of strange stories and. A classic Beaumont episode is one of my favorites called The Howling Man. Yes. Which is the yes. one about the devil being kept uh, locked in key and in this old monastery. And how mm-hmm. he howls every night. And this this traveler thinks the guy's being kept by these crazy monks. And he, he lets them go. And then, of course, we discover that it's Satan himself, which is just mm-hmm. a, a great, great episode. And the other thing is that they had some marvelous directors who were brought in on episodes that particularly needed a type of style. We earlier mentioned Eye of the Beholder, which was directed by Douglas Hayes. And -hmm. Douglas Hayes also came in to direct The Invaders, which was the Agnes Moorhead episode, where Mm -hmm. she's the giant alien and the little baby space traveler. (laughs) I know. I know. And it turns out that, you know, they're actually people from Earth. You know, they're not aliens at all. They, they, They did that a couple of times. Like in the, well, the third rock one that we just talked about, you know, they were leaving a planet and going to earth. You would think they were leaving right. earth and going somewhere else. Right. And uh, yeah, they did that with the Agnes Moorhead one. Sure. Oh, and then there was another one where, oh gosh, uh, again, the title of the episode escapes me, but they were in a cabin and they found a giant footprint and it turned out that it was a balloon. Yeah, it was the, it was the fifth season episode. It's called the fear. The fear, that's what it was. That's what it With was. Actually starring Peter Mark Richman, who just passed away the other day. I mean, oh, we lost that, him yeah. just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, he. that's a very interesting episode. Like I said, when you watch all 156, you see mm-hmm. there are a lot of joys and very little st- stumbling blocks along the way. In fact, I would have to say that of those 156 episodes, only two or three left me cold. and But mm-hmm. even in those two or three, there was always something fun. The other thing I want to point out, and I think that's why it's so difficult to replicate this show, mm-hmm. is once you shoot a Twilight Zone in color, you lose 50% of the atmosphere. There's something very, very unworldly about watching a black and white show. Yes. You know, something I had, you know, th- that's something that I really always believed there had been several other incarnations of the show over the years. You know, the one with Forrest Whitaker, there was another one, I think further back in the eighties, maybe around 85. And I was with them in spirit because, you know, again, this is like, you know, this has got to be my all time favorite show. But the thing is, I just, it, I really agree with you. I really felt like it, it lost something when it came to colorized, you know, being color 
it, it being it filmed in color, I should say. Now, now, Mike, here's another thing I discovered. Because I was watching each episode with a clipboard. I was making notes of everything to kind of get an idea of what I needed to put in entries in the show. Mm-hmm. Product placement has become very commonplace today. And mm-hmm. not only product placement, just branded entertainment, things that pop up in frames, like mm-hmm. driving by a McDonald's or, or taking a gasoline from a Chevron station or, or anything. In those 156 episodes, I only found two cases, two cases mm-hmm. of references, and they were very, very low key. One was in that first episode I mentioned, that Where Is Everybody episode shot at Universal, where he walks by the Earl Holloman walks by a gasoline station. And he sees a sign for an oil company, which was a real oil company at that time. Mm-hmm. And then the only other reference in the whole series I could find was a reference to a Mickey Mouse watch. Okay. And in all that time. So the other thing that Sterling wanted to be very careful with, and this is very subtle, is he didn't want you to see anything familiar. He wanted to keep you a little bit off balance. Hmm. He wanted you to see something. He wanted you to see the world as he saw it. Now today. We've kind of gone the full circle. You read a Stephen King novel, and in the first chapter, the lead character is sitting at his table watching Hollywood Squares or or a more contemporary show like Jeopardy and mm-hmm. is eating his sugar frosted flakes. So you immediately identify the guy because you could be that guy. Right, and right, in, right. In Spielberg's movies, a lot of his movies, you you see the world as it is with a lot of references. No references in that original series at all. And I think that contributes to how effective those episodes were. Hmm. That's interesting. That's interesting. And the more I think, and, and now that I've, you mentioned that, yeah, I, I can definitely uh, see that. I can definitely see well, that. Well, I actually, you know? I, I, I watched them so carefully. I wanted them to be clear about when they left the lot. Cause as I mentioned, they had all those back lots. They didn't have to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only time they really left the lot, I mean, you could put them on one hand. They did go up to death Valley to film those two desert episodes. The great episode in the first season with Jack Warden, the loner. Yes. Yes. A, yes. A, a guy stranded on the asteroid, the convict. And then I think in that same episode, same season, they had the rip rip van Winkle caper where the bank robbers steal all that gold and then they go into suspended <laughs> yes. animation cabinets. Uh-huh. I thought that was a very cool episode. Love that. And then of course mm-hmm. the great set, I think it was the first episode of the second season, which is the Bob Cummings episode about the B 25 that crashed in the North African desert. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. right. King nine will not return. I think that was the title of it. Right, right, right. A couple of the other ones that I thought were really entertaining, not necessarily like a big moral, you know, wasn't really like a big fable episode or something like with a real big moral to the story, but some of the ones that were almost just like kind of like a little mystery that was, you know, kind of entertaining. Uh, One was, you know, will the real Martians stand up? Oh, yeah. How? In industry parlance, that's called a bottle show. That's where they film everything on one set. Yes. So, yes I mean, yes. and that was very cool. I, I like that episode a lot. Mm-hmm. I really did too. Um, and you know, how the one fella, he just pulls his hat up and all of a sudden, you know, the one fella <laughs> he's at the bar and he's like, well, I made that bus crash, you know? And then the other fella pulls up. Well, we just intercepted your people that were trying to come to earth and they're not going to be coming, you know, or something <laughs> like along those lines. That was just one of the ones that I thought was really neat. Another one that I thought was really neat, this one had a bit of a moral to it, was uh, What You Need. Maybe that wasn't the title of it, the proper title, but there was a little old man who was a vendor, and he would go up to somebody and say, this is what you need. Yes. And yes. and there were there were a couple of episodes like that where somebody had like a special power or something. Somebody would exploit that power for bad. Right. Um, that was um, a Buddy Ebsen episode where he had the ability to foresee, I think, cards or dice or something. Well, he had, I think they called it uh, the ability to manipulate the dice so he could use his head to make sure it came. Yes. Upset. Yes. That was it. You right. know, so you know, what you need. And then that one, somebody was able to use these abilities, you know, for bad. And it ended up, you know, turning on them in the end, you know, um, sure. Sure. So, you know, you know, the moral stories, the political climate, but then also too, you know, people uh, like human flaws were a big theme, you know, like the seven deadly sins, really, if you think about it. Well, you know, it's interesting when I was a little boy, when the show came on, I was only like, I was 
seven or eight. Mm -hmm. I wandered into the living room one night and my parents were watching an episode called The Silence, which you'll Mm -hmm. recall is the episode that takes place in the private club where this motor mouth will not stop talking. (laughs) Right, right, right. Fran Chatone played this kind of crusty old ex-military guy who bets the guy a half a million dollars he can't shut up for a year and they put him in a glass room in the basement and i'll tell you i watched that for about 10 minutes and the concept of not talking for a year mm-hmm. i left I, I couldn't take it i left there's no way i'm watching <laughs> it and i didn't come back to the twilight zone until it came into reruns <laughs> right 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 I think when I was a kid, I had a couple of teachers at school that wanted to do that to me. (laughs) 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 Oh, and yeah, like that. But, um, by the the way, another little point I I brought out in my book, it's interesting learning Mm -hmm. that theme, that twilight zone theme, which appears in the second season. The first season was all that wonderful Bernard Herman opening music. Yes. Yes. The great composer associated with Hitchcock and the Sinbad movies. But, um, the theme uh, that became the Twilight Zone theme was written by Marius Constant, a French song uh, specialist, but it had nothing to do with the Twilight Zone. Uh, the head of the CBS music department would go to Europe every year to look for material, and he brought back a couple of bits of, of this guy Marius Constant's work, and he mm-hmm. took two, they put two of them together. And that became the Twilight Zone theme. So it was all very serendipitous. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I, I, I love that theme too. And, and again, that was just very, uh, you know, typical, you know, of, of the times back then, you know, the, um, you know, of course we got the, you know, do, 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 and then, you know, they get, you know, kind of the bongos come in and then the horns and everything, just very typical of music of that time and everything. And it really kind of sets the mood of, um, you it know, when you're watching that show and everything. Who were some of the, you know, I know you, you interviewed a number of people and got some behind the story. Who were some of the more interesting ones that you had, you know, the people that you really sat down with and really got to hear some stories from? Earl Holloman was very interesting. Uh, I, I've always been a fan of Earl Holloman because he was in one of my favorite science fiction films of the 1950s, Forbidden Planet, mm. played the cook. Right, right, uh, right. And so I always like seeing him. And like we said, he's in that first episode, that pilot episode, Where Is Everybody? And he mm-hmm. talked about the fact that he had this uh, horrible fever uh, during the making of that show, which I thought was very interesting. You know, he got that part because he was in the parking lot at Universal he bumped into Serling and Serling was writing Where Is Everybody? And he brought it home. He got a script. And he was almost completely delighted with the fact that he was the only actor in the show. So that was just thrilling for Holloman. So he was kind of fun. I talked to William Reynolds, who was in a great episode called The Purple Testament. He played a U.S. Army officer in the Philippines who sees that shining light on his soldiers' faces, which meant that they were going to die the next day. So it was a terrifying thing for him. And Reynolds said that was really interesting for him. He loved the experience. The people I talked to, they just really loved working on the show. Uh-huh. And I think it was a very unique part of their careers to be involved with Serling. Little Morgan Brittany, although she wasn't called Morgan Brittany then, she had a different name. She became Morgan Brittany when she did those nighttime soap operas. She was a young girl in a couple of episodes. And she was, I think her name at that time was Suzanne Caputo. Oh. And she's in the episode with uh, Jackie Cooper where he's the ventriloquist. Oh, yeah. God, that kid. <laughs> <laughs> that annoying kid, exactly. Oh, boy, yeah. <laughs> oh, boy, yeah. Right, exactly. And then, you know, I talked to different people. The guy who played one of the robots in the Lee Marvin episode, you know, the one he has to fight. That's called. I think the episode's called Steel. Steel, right, right. And Lee Marvin is a manager of an, a robot that mm-hmm. obviously the robot's not working. So Lee Marvin eventually steps into the ring. And uh-huh. so the guy who fought him was interesting. And they're talking about the making of that episode. Took I like place that. in 1974. Right. Right. Very good. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> so yeah, those were a couple of people. And then, and then uh, a while back I'd interviewed Richard Matheson, by the way, in my book, uh, the twilight zone encyclopedia, I feature 
the last interview that Rod ever gave. Uh, oh. I published the whole interview, mm-hmm. which was done shortly before his death. And it's very prescient about some of the things he was thinking about that time. Mm. And uh, I felt honored to be able to license that interview. So that is in the book. Boy, was he taken way too soon. Way too soon. Way too soon. I mean, he wasn't even 50 years old. I don't think he was just 50. Just turned 50. 50. She's a whiz. Gosh, could you imagine what he could have done with another 25 years or so? Well, I will say this, though. I will say this, Mike. I think Mm -hmm. that his style of writing Mm -hmm. had gone out of style. And I think that he had trouble. If you look at his filmography, his television uh, uh, stuff after The Twilight Mm -hmm. Zone, it's it's almost like the twilight zone and all of his live tv work before he did the twilight zone mm-hmm. was his uh, bellwether you know his uh his peak i think he peaked with the zone uh he, that's uh, that show sapped him he wrote 92 of those episodes and i would argue that in many ways he wrote himself out now obviously mm-hmm. he did good work later on but nothing at the level of what he did with the twilight zone. Yeah. You know, I, I, I agree. I, I think you're right about that. I definitely, I think you're right about that. You I mean, know, after, um, after the twilight zone, he did a TV series with Lloyd bridges called the loner, which uh-huh. was a Western series. Interestingly, Rod wanted to do a Western series that wasn't about violence, about uh-huh. a man who avoided violence. Uh-huh. And unfortunately to his horror, he discovered that people didn't want to watch that kind of show. If they wanted to watch a Western, they mm. wanted to see the shoot 'em ups. So doing a nonviolent Western was a mistake. So he he didn't he was very saddened by the fate of that show. And then, as I pointed out, the Night Gallery didn't really fly. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't him. I mean, he mm. did not have the creative control that he should have. Well, this has been fascinating, Steve. I've really enjoyed listening to you talk where can we get this book i know it's available on kindle but do you have a website could you uh tell us you know how to get a hold of this and well the maybe- twilight the twilight zone encyclopedia is available on amazon right now it's, okay. uh, i just talked to the publisher last week they're reprinting it's available uh it's uh, i'm very proud of that book i think it's a fun book you don't oh, have as to you should be cover. as and you should be steve yeah it's uh, it's a lot of fun so amazon's the best way i I do a, I do have a Facebook presence for me, Steve Rubin. I do some film reviewing mm-hmm. on my site, certainly now in the midst of promoting my latest encyclopedia, the fourth edition of the James Bond movie encyclopedia. Nice. And I'm out there every day trying to sell shows and, and films. So mm-hmm. I'm out there and people can stay in touch with me through Facebook, or I also have a, a, a LinkedIn connection as well. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, this has been absolutely delightful having you join us on foul players radio tonight. You know, again, gosh, uh, the twilight zone. I mean, I've, I've just, I've loved this show for such a long time and, you know, looking through your book and seeing all these great facts and all these wonderful things you've been able to come up with over the years and the people you've been able to talk to and the pictures and everything. This is just, I tell you, it's just a wonderful book, um, would make a great gift, you know, for anybody in the family who would love, you know, who loves the twilight zone. I got to tell you, I mean, you just did a remarkable job on this. I was very happy to have you with me tonight. I appreciate you you coming on, you know, thank you so much, Mike. And perhaps in the fall, we can talk about bond in the fall. We will talk about bond. My friend, we definitely will. We most definitely will. Well, Well, folks, you're listening to Steve Rubin here on Foul Players Radio. Make sure you go out and check out the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia. It's well worth it. It has a, you you can get a a hard copy of the book. You can also get it on Kindle. If you don't like lugging a lot of books around, you can get it on Kindle as well, electronically. Definitely well worth it. Thank you again. We've been listening to Steve Rubin here on Foul Players Radio, and we'll see you next time. Hey, what's up, guys? It's Chris Rostalia breaking the fourth wall. If you enjoy our show, you can find it on YouTube. Just look up Realm of the Mist Entertainment or just look up Realm of the Mist Entertainment on Anchor.fm, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, or wherever quality podcasts can be heard. And also, you can find us on all the social medias. Just look for Realm of the Mist Entertainment. And I will catch you on the other side. I'm Michael, the host of the semi-monthly podcast in a city like yours. 
Join me as I chat with interesting people with interesting life stories. You can listen to the podcast on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can follow us on Twitter at IACLYS Podcast, as well as on Facebook and Instagram at In a City Like Yours Podcast. Please feel free to let me know what you think and keep coming back for the many interesting stories in a city like yours. Hey, this is Don Smith from the Life Radio Show. If you've always wanted to learn more about the world of low-budget filmmaking and even lower-budget comedy, tune into the Life Radio Show. You can live stream the show at www.su1069.org on Tuesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern. Or find us wherever you find podcasts and like and follow the Life Radio Show on Facebook for live video and other shenanigans. Hey, what's up? This is Christopher Stolle of Realm of the Mist Entertainment. The podcast you are listening to is part of the SJ Network. Go to s-j-network.com. That's s-j-network.com for more great podcasts and information on those shows, as well as information and ability to contact publicist Steve Joyner for more information. Just go to the website and check out the family, ladies and gentlemen. Until then, enjoy the show.